Welcome to Sex, Psychics and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at The Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. So about six years ago, I was on this kind of rabid tear around female sexuality and empowerment. I was waking up to um, self-objectification, the objectification of uh, females. And um, yeah, I was waking up to all of these new ways of, of looking at female sexuality. And it was around this time I was ranting to my friend Adrienne Grenier, who I'm very excited will be on this show soon. Um, and... He said, oh, you have to meet my friend Ariel. And I remember he on the spot wrote me and Ariel this kind of introductory te text that said, um, meet, trust, enjoy. And it was a very kind of seductive beginning. And of course, me and Ariel totally hit it off. Um, and I was excited to see one of her first uh my Little Yoni Dolls. And um, for those of you who don't know, Yoni is Sanskrit for female genitalia. Ariel thought it was a more kind of benign way of talking about uh, female genitalia. Um, vagina is not a, a full description of female genitalia and vulva hasn't yet caught on, um, although that is technically the right definition. Anyway... So Ariel and I have stayed in touch and I've been so curious to see where her yoni journey is is going. And I remember Ariel coming on one of my women's retreats and she gave us all a yoni doll. And, uh, and I still have mine. I have mine right here. I'm just about to show her. All right, my love. Oh, look, I want to show you what I've got here. <laughs> my little so yoni pretty. okay so this is going to be audio so what i'm holding up right now is a um a fabricated yoni it's a you you take it from here ariel you have a better description tell me what it is that i'm actually well, holding very, right now it's a very real yoni i mean well real in terms of it is reminiscent of a vulva and it's fluffy <laughs> Which, um, in case you don't already know, fluffy yoni equals happy yoni. Oh, nice. I, wait, fluffy meaning? Fluffy meaning, I don't know, engorged, full, Oh, I ripe. see. It's, it's yes. a ripe, plump, fluffy, yummy yoni. Fluffy yoni. Happy, but that's the, <laughs> shiny, happy yoni. That's the original version from Bali. And then oh. um, this character, my little yoni, the world's first vagina superhero, has evolved Okay. over the years yes and so now she actually um is a superhero busting shame and here on a mission to bring accurate sex ed into the homes of families so she has um definitely evolved over, over the years and as she's gotten to know the need and problems that are most prevalent that's that's where she's bound to serve so she's a character is she does she look like a yoni or does she look like a woman? She looks like a yoni. Yeah. She looks like a yoni. She is a yeah. yoni superhero. And how big is she? How big is she? <laughs> uh, well, I think she could take on any size because mm -hmm. as a superhero, she can morph. 
So yes. Little and, ones, life size ones. And yes. vulvas morph too, don't they? So I guess that makes sense. That is true. <laughs> it's all yeah, flexible and mobile. Um, okay, so so my little yoni is an education program. That's what my little yoni has morphed into. Yeah. So we just completed a 10-part book series. Mm-hmm. Uh the the first title is already out. It's called Yoni Magic, the Amazing Truth. And it's basically Vulva Anatomy 101. But the instructor, teacher walking you through the book is the character of My Little Yoni. And then um, the other nine titles, which we've just completed, dig into topics like consent. We have a book called All About Consent. Um, We have one that talks about masturbation called What is the M Word? Um, We uh, get into gender identity and breaking the binary, how babies are created and creating life. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole series covering the topics that ideally we would all grow up knowing about. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, a, a lot of the times we are uncomfortable discussing these things as parents and just yeah. expect school to handle it. And then school doesn't handle it because sex ed in the school system is quite broken. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to combat. It seems like no one really wants to tackle sex ed. I mean, even as a parent who's really into sex and talking about sex, um, I still find it hard with my children, there's still a gulf. And of course, they're in a different world than we were growing up. And um, there, I think there are lots of layers to it. But one thing I've noticed, it really does depend on the age of the kid, how receptive they are. So I think, you know, they reach a certain point, they're not receptive to listening to the parents. So it seems really wise to seed it in early. And I'm wondering what the age range is that you focus as an educator. So one of the reasons we were really talking to parents first and foremost, and and Mm. so, you know, it depends on the comfort level of the parent. But for example, um, our, our basic Yoni anatomy book, that could, that could be taught to children from age two, from, from the, you know, from, from the first time you would start reading any books to them, uh, you could introduce that subject matter. And then, you know, the, our period book, Power of Periods, you know, you could share that earlier, mm. but it probably isn't relevant until a girl is, you know, seven, eight, nine in that range. Um, but I think a general rule of thumb, well, you already touched on one thing, which is introducing it before they're too enculturated and shut off and start yeah. laughing and don't want to hear it. That's very, very important. So while they're still um, in that open zone of learning about everything, mm. um, that is that is the easiest time to, to start the conversation. And you know, I think once parents get over the initial hurdles of it being uncomfortable, they start to realize that that discomfort is theirs; it's not their children's. <laughs> so children's are child, kids are very open to all subject matter. It's, mm. it's all the same to them. Mm-hmm. They're learning mm-hmm. about the world. Yeah. So that is the time to introduce it. Um, and then also to think about it as not a one-time conversation, yeah. but a series of many conversations that happen and develop over time. So I think that's an important reframe as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's quite a thing, uh, certainly in America, that there is uh, this concept of the talk, like this one and only talk where the parent takes the kids to, you know, out to tea or something. I don't know, maybe Starbucks, <laughs> like along with the Bantam bagel, there's a quick download. Um, 
yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate what you're saying about sort of seeding it in so it can be a natural flow of conversation. And I mean, that's, I feel like the, the one bit I've gotten better, I don't know about right, but better with my girls, which is just sort of allowing it to be part of the general conversation. I mean, they're bombarded with sex on the internet. It's kind of weird if you suddenly stop talking about it. You know, it's it's on screen, but it's not in real life. And um, But I, I feel also when you really dig into it in terms of family life, families are so different in terms of sex. I mean, I grew up with divorced parents, so I never it, sex. I mean, my mom had boyfriends at some point and my dad had a girlfriend at some point, but the sort of sexy side of things was pretty, pretty out of the picture. And I was talking to a good friend the other day and she was like, oh yeah, we grew up with my parents having sex all the time. They would just go in and they'd lock their door, but we'd hear the sex and we'd be like, that's it. My parents having sex. And so I think it's really, really interesting. If you haven't heard your parents having sex and then you suddenly hear a little bit of it, it's weird. Mm, it can be. Yeah, mm. definitely. And so, I think your friend had the yeah. more atypical experience than that. Mm. Yeah. So tell me about you and, and your background in this and your family life and culture. And how did you get to the stage where you wanted to educate about this? It's interesting because I grew up in a fairly open-minded family. We didn't, I didn't have influence of religion. Mm. Um, you know, my parents were kind of prime hippie generation. They had me later in life. And I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which is kind of a liberal Mecca, mm-hmm. as it were. And yet when it comes to human sexuality, I mean, it was just as in the dark as anywhere else. So it's kind of interesting that even in in a, a community like Boulder or a family like mine, that's quite liberal and um, expanded on a consciousness level and health food and just general wellness mm-hmm. that the conversation around sexuality still hadn't caught up. Um, but then my mom, she did share a fair amount with me, not, not really in terms of anatomy or sex ed, but more she shared with me about some of the really not great things that exist um, in the world, like rape and such. And she shared that with me because she was a survivor of some Uh, pretty uh. intense sexual assault earlier in her life. And so I think she shared you know, aspects of that with me because she just, she wanted me to stay safe and she figured, Hey, if I knew this existed, that somehow that would protect me. And I I do think on one level, that's true. I also think, you know, we want to have different tools and age appropriate conversations are very important, but I would say starting from a young age, I, um, I just knew that there was a lot, um, a lot awry and that, that all was not well when it came to not just sexuality, but, but being the, the vulnerability that can come with being in a woman's body and that these not great things happen. And so I, you know, I, I would say I started paying attention to that from a fairly young age. And then on a personal level, um, I felt quite free and independent. I would say even in high school, I didn't feel like I needed a boyfriend or anything. Um, so when I did make love for the first time, it was an initiation I gave myself, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, I found a lover. I had that experience. It was, you know, and then, and what then do you I mean actually, you gave it to yourself? Um, thinking of that experience as an initiation, I gave myself that initiation. 
So it's something Meaning you controlled I, it. You decided about all the, the bits and yeah, pieces. Yeah. I decided yeah. the who, I decided the when, I decided the <laughs> I was the, the same, how. very on top of it. <laughs> I'm very thankful for that, actually. It's a privilege, yeah. really, now knowing how many people don't get to choose how they lose their virginity. I feel like it's a real privilege. It's definitely a privilege or just mixing it up with, oh, you know, it's only, it's only valuable if you're in a relationship or in love with that person or whatever. Mm. I just didn't have that narrative in my yeah, head. Yeah, it yeah. was valuable all on its own. Yeah. It's something I wanted to experience as an initiation into that part of myself mm-hmm. as a sexual being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then after the well, I can't say the mystery just, I was going to say after the mystery was dispelled, but we know that it's a constant mystery. That's right. (laughs) After that first experience, I actually didn't engage again with anyone for well over a year because I felt like I had satisfied that curiosity. So just fast forwarding. um, How old were you, by the way? When I first had sex, I was 16. Yeah. 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 And so anyways, when it came to just my own expression, I definitely felt in charge um, of that for myself. And then after high school, I started training. um, I I got my degree in human development. So multidisciplinary intersection of cognitive science and psychology and even some sociology and learning how the brain works and kind of seeing from, from, uh, from cradle to grave, what is considered normal human development Mm. studying that. And then in tandem with that, I was taking trainings and assisting workshops at the Esalen Institute and going deep into somatic body, mind, psychology, Mm. healing modality, shamanic practice. Like, so they were, it was interesting um, going down both those paths at the same time. Um, And ultimately I found an affinity for the personal transformation work um, and started focusing on women and doing one-on-one work and leading retreats. And it was from there, I realized how major this piece is around owning our sexuality for ourselves as women. Yeah, I think it's, it is a kind of self-possession. And that's interesting to, to look at what can create that because we could all do with self-possession. That's a really wonderful wonderful quality, the feeling of being able to to hold on to yourself. Um, but it's not always a given. And I don't know how much of that is education or more mysterious factors. You know, having having worked with hundreds of women who are just starting to have a relationship with their own pleasure for themselves, let's say, I mean, often not until they're in their 40s or 50s. To me, when it comes to raising the next generation better or giving them a more empowered start, it's not just the anatomy or the medical aspects of sex ed. Pleasure actually needs to be part of the, of the curriculum, as yes. it were. You know, and especially for girls, to girls to grow up knowing, hey, your yoni is yours and it's perfectly natural and healthy to explore your body mm. and you're in the safety of your own room. And, um, and it's, and it's perfectly normal and natural to make yourself feel good. And, you know, this is what pleasure is. This is what orgasm is. And I mean, that's extremely taboo, but I do think that that ties into the self-possession that you're talking about. And then also just being, um, I actually think that's a very huge piece of, um, being safer as women. Now I'm not saying that self-pleasure and, and, and knowing that masturbation is okay as a girl will 
magically transform the larger issues we see in the world, but it plays an important role. Because look, if, if girls know that they're, that, that they get to be a source of that, um, I mean, that does tie into the self-possession and also ties into having more of a voice, um, knowing what does and does not feel good and just, you know, being their own advocate. And I don't think that that's a piece that's talked about very often um, for a variety of reasons. What? The pleasure piece? The pleasure piece. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Agreed. Well, let's also let's break it down because I'm imagining if you haven't heard a lot about the pleasure piece, that might just seem like we're talking about um, orgasms or sort of genital turn on. But I know that it goes beyond that. So let's let's break down pleasure. That doesn't feel like the right word, breaking down pleasure. Let's stoke it. <laughs> let's uh, caress it. Yes, let's massage let's it. Unfold it. Yes. Yes. And maybe this is just me, but I feel like we're not just talking about genital turn on and and climaxing and putting, you know, feeling free to touch yourself. It pleasure is is a big picture mm. I mean I feel like you're more of an expert on this than me but if I was just to riff on it I'd say pleasure is is food pleasure is touch pleasure is going slow pleasure is you know meditating on love in different ways to me pleasure is it's, it's music it's a multi-dimensional thing and um Allowing more pleasure into your life, I think, is a is about also allowing yourself to um, to take up space <laughs> and to live in joy and to allow and not be in some fixed idea of arrival and how life should be. So I feel like it's a revolutionary kind of um, sh- mental shift. The idea of moving into pleasure, mm. um, yeah, pleasure. It's I would say that it can also be rest and relaxation. And it, it, you could say that it's actually the antithesis or perhaps an antidote or one of the ingredients of transcending, uh, you know, white colonial, uh, capitalistic, just being a cog in the wheel. Um, you know, it's liberating mm. and it, and it's reorienting. And it's also life affirming in terms of, wow, I hold worth and value simply in my being. It's returning to a more core essence of, wow, it's a gift to be alive. Um, So I do, I do like that term life affirming. So, and of course there's many different kinds of pleasure, but I think the kind of default cultural narrative around pleasure is it's very sensational. like. You know, like the dopamine hit you get scrolling mm. on uh, Instagram or that when you get the likes or, you know, something really sugary or salty or fatty or like really intense mm. 3D French effects fry. in the movie theater, <laughs> or, yeah, you know, all of that, or, or yeah. even a really intensely stimulating porn. And while there may be a place for all of that, I think that that is a sensational stimulation that might be more about escaping reality or escaping oneself versus what I believe you and I are talking about and exploring uh, as pleasure is more about embodying reality even more, becoming more present, more sensitive. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so sensationalism can actually have a numbing effect, mm. dulling, numbing, 
And I think what we're describing is, wow, actually um, removing layers from the heart, feeling even more, uh, creating safety to melt. Yeah, there's so much I love in what you said. Um, what I feel is really important is this, uh, this safety piece, um, being safe to feel and you can't really I, I think there's a personal discovery that I can't really fully feel unless I feel that I'm safe which doesn't mean that there aren't versions of feeling unsafe that aren't exciting or like you were saying feeling numbed out mm-hmm. it can also feel like a relief right it can re- be a relief the, the porn or the french fry or the you know cocktail of choice, whatever it is, can can feel like a relief. So yeah, I think it's really interesting through these two different directions that we can go, which is kind of like out or in, you know, it's like which which Alice in Wonderland cookie do you want to take? But yes, that the numbing out to porn is kind of a direct opposite of a waking up to sensation. And I think it's really interesting that in sex, it feels like at I mean, porn is the most enormous machine that I, I mean, I don't even know how you think about that. When I think about how enormous that machine is, I just, it's kind of like with the environment, you know, I just sort of value people who are really going to bat for it. Cause like going to bat for sex education in a world of porn is quite something. You know, we're, we just, we're, we're focusing on making it as simple as possible and just starting mm. with basic statistics of that people aren't aware of, you know, it's like, Hey, only 17 states require medically accurate sex ed. It's like, wow. wow. Is that true? I yeah, didn't know that. Only seven states require consent to be covered in their curriculum. You know, it's just things like that. When people start learning uh, that, it's not yeah. hard to be like, Oh, wow. We, we do Houston. We have a problem. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. And so then it's not a stretch to say, Hey, you know, we're, we're, we're making this as easy as possible. Here are some books, you know, introduce this conversation yourself. Use, let this be a tool that hopefully makes these conversations easier to initiate. You know, so, so our, we're not trying to get rid of porn by any means. There's a time and place for porn. And I, and I imagine there actually is more female gaze, yeah. artful, maybe even, uh, heart opening porn. Like I, I'm sure there's a whole universe of possibility there. And it's, I'm definitely not an expert in that yeah. realm. So I don't yeah. try to be, and I yeah. don't combat it. I think it's more, if we do talk about that, it's more just saying like, Hey, you between, I think it's between 39 and 89% of kids by the time they're 10 have already been exposed to porn. So knowing that, what do you want them to be exposed to first? Material or books or conversations that you initiate while they still very much Mm -hmm. trust you and Mm -hmm. orient Mm -hmm. you as their parents? Or do you want porn and older kids to be the first exposure? Because they will be exposed to that eventually. You know, and what's great too is the guesswork is unnecessary in terms of there's countries that have gotten this aspect right far before us in the US. So we already have the the data to show us that kids that receive comprehensive early sex education make healthier choices later in life. You know, rates no, of teen pregnancy are lower, <laughs> you know, rates of they just so I mean that that's the good it news is it's yeah, it's like it's yeah. the obvious choice once once we, you know, kind of look a little more and and that's why you know, parents are receiving the education alongside their kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so given that 
more likely, I mean, I'd love to think that loads of kids are going to listen to this podcast, but I'm thinking more likely. (laughs) (laughs) All the kids. Uh, (laughs) Okay, more likely it's going to be parents. And I'm imagining it's quite likely there might be a parent listening right now thinking this all sounds really nice. But the fact is, you know, all I inherited was a bunch of shame around sex. And I like the idea of turning on to pleasure, but I'm damn busy and blah, 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 blah. Um, how do I actually do it? How do I, you know, how do I break this down? So I think it's sort of, um, can you address that? We're looking at like, how do we begin, continue this, uh, de pleasure, loving process in an operational way? One piece is just understanding how our physiology works and that, you know, if we're in, in stress mode or if our sympathetic nervous system is activated a lot as typically it is, it's completely normal that you're not thinking about pleasure and that you might even have resistance Mm. around giving yourself that kind of space. Um, uh, so knowing that, I guess it, at the beginning, it comes down to, you know, in other words, stop waiting for you to just be like, okay, and now I feel just so inspired to Mm. do this for myself. Um, you know, and, and that's where making it a practice is really how it starts. And then even how it continues. I mean, to this day, it continues to be a practice. Pleasure as a practice. Do you mean like in the way of like, you know, 20 minutes a day meditation that you would touch yourself for 20 minutes a day? Is that what we're talking about or something more? Yeah, I don't think it has to be that that specific necessarily, but more in terms of, um, you know, if you're wanting to get, if you're wanting to boost your cardio, you're going to have to Mm -hmm. show up and take a jog sometimes. Or, you know, if you're wanting to improve communication with your partner, you might want to go to therapy. So more like that, um, you know, relating to pleasure as a practice in terms of Mm. it might actually take some, might take scheduling. Yeah. I was going to say, just put it on the calendar, (laughs) put it on the calendar, pleasure on the calendar. Um, a number two is that there's a lot of precursors. So yes, it could be, um, watching some great videos or taking a course or doing something that's focused on the vulva orgasmic potential, or, you know, it could be that focused, but I like what you've been talking about in terms of the broader pleasure. And I would, would agree with that. There's lots of things that can prime you for experiencing more pleasure that don't actually even seem erotic Mm. or sensual even. One, there's this uh, practice of paying more attention to, I call it micro moments. So it's like, you know, things you're already doing like a, like a meal. Mm. So rather than rushing through the meal or multitasking or being on your phone while you're having that meal, can you say a little prayer before the meal and then actually call yourself forth into full presence? Um, and then the, the second thing is I like to talk about sensation thresholds. So expanding sensation thresholds. Because it's pretty, you know, it's pretty clear that we mostly want to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. But I think that's only half the story. You know, if there's pain, we might resist and say we don't want that. But we actually do that with pleasure, too. So one of the reasons we don't experience it is because our, th- our if our threshold for pain is this, our threshold for pleasure generally is that, too. It's, so it's actually, commensurate. It's the same. I, I, 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's hard rules, but generally. And so starting to relate to sensation as sensation. So that's where even uh, some of what is popular now with biohacking and the ice baths and things like that. People aren't generally doing that in the name of like, I want to have more powerful erotic experiences or orgasms, but I see a corollary. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate the idea of, of welcoming it in. And it strikes me that as always, this is about slowing down so you can tune in. It's also myth busting. So, you know, if there's a conflict between I want this, but I don't have time for this, for example, I don't have time is major. I mean, we've always all been there, but so, uh, uh, preliminary exercise could be to just track your time for five days, literally write down from when you wake up to when you go to bed, Mm. just track it down. And you might discover, you know, you spent 20 minutes listening to a friend bitch about something that you didn't enjoy at all. And maybe you spent another 15 minutes feeling shitty Mm. on social media, scrolling stuff or whatever it is. And this is making me uncomfortable already. I'm like, I wouldn't want to show you my Netflix numbers. (laughs) You really... Really bad. And and it's not about judgment or shame or anything, but it's more just to have um, an honest reflection. And you might see it and you can be like, oh, wow, I actually don't need to magically come up with more time I don't even have. I can just say, you know, I can I can reclaim some time. Yeah, this stuff is confronting because once you start opening up, and I think particularly if you're married, long-term relationship, and you're kind of getting through life in the way of like you're building things, you're focusing on your work, you've got your kids, you're raising stuff. Desire can not only feel a little bit um, out of reach, but it can also feel like potentially dangerous. I mean, we're back Mm. to the element of fire. What if I start wanting again? What if I want someone else if I'm monogamous or, you know, I mean, I think it takes so many different different forms. And and it's interesting, actually, if we go into kind of a monogamy and polyamory, then, and what I've noticed more in sort of polyamory communities, there's a lot of space made for desire, but then that's what everyone's talking about. You know what I mean? And it's just like, what about the rest of life? So, um, yeah, I, I just like the idea of, um, appreciating that it is confronting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it yeah. doesn't have to be some enormous dive. It can just be like little moments, little enhancements. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, back to the impossible question of sort of of balance. But yeah, I think that, you know, religion has battled with desire endlessly. We've all battled with desire. I mean, it's no joke. And, but I think denying it is, you know, equally a problem. Uh, what I find exciting about uh, the sort of the pleasure and the desire trip is I think that <laughs> that's my theory is that it doesn't all have to be about other people. It doesn't all have to be about relationship. It can also just be about creativity. It can be about your direct relationship to life. It can be about what you want to paint. It can be, it can be about a fantasy of how you see yourself. It can be um, a very strong, I guess, you know, um, creational manifestation tool as well. Absolutely. And I love that. And that is what makes it safe. And even I would say more potent because we're so conditioned to make it about other, yeah. other people <laughs> or this or that. And it's like, well, no, yeah. what, what relating to it as a creational force? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you two questions, big questions. Um, the biggest challenge in your work 
The biggest challenge in my work, well, <laughs> we're, uh, we're talking about um, sex education and self-pleasure for kids. So that <laughs> <laughs> does it just go I without mean, saying? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a, just, just doing something. I mean, what's great. And I hope you all look up my little Yoni and you'll see what a fun, friendly, actually non-sexual character she is. She's just this fun, yeah. playful, very safe, approachable. And I mean, I think that's why we do have moms that, that love her so much, including Christian moms, you know, mm. um, who are like, hey, this, this actually isn't in conflict with, with religion. I want my kids to be more empowered, empowered and have a better start. You know, that's something we all want as yeah, mothers. Self-protection. I, I, I mean, yeah. you want your kids to look after themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe that. But that being said, Doing something as new as what we're doing is definitely challenging. And then also balancing My Little Yoni, which is, um, you know, a benefit-based organization. We, we you know, everything we generate, um, we, we re-donate to our program, which is, is all about uh, giving this material out for free. So, um, you know, balancing this deeply service oriented project with my more personal work, which would be, you know, my writing, my art, and just making sure that I'm still creating enough space for that aspect. Mm, for your which pleasure. Is deeply, which is for my pleasure. And my, yeah. uh, you know, uh, is deeply nourishing on a creative soul level. I would say that that is a challenge. Yeah. I hear you. Okay, and uh, your your highest hopes for your work for the planet, big dreams. Hmm. Well, I've been working on this piece, and it it'll be coming out later this year. But it's called Lover Earth, and uh, the intention of that piece for for women, but ultimately all of us to to relate to the natural world and to the earth, not only as the source of life, not only as the mother, but as um, the beloved, as, as a lover and to have that level of um, that level of union and to have that inspiration to go into the natural love, to make love with self and nature as one and to see where that journey leads, um, I would say that that's a that, that I'm very I'm very curious to see what that would result in because I'm like wow what kind of choices would we make what kind of activism would that birth if it wasn't just a um, the oh you know that like the the concern and the fear of we have to protect the natural world and it was actually like wow I'm so expanded and in love and turned on by the natural world and I'm going to emulate and create and, um, you know, and devote myself to the natural world as I would if I were just madly in love. I'm very curious. My desire for that is very high. Yes. Um, it makes sense that if we're really in touch with our desire and our desire is flowing freely, that we would want to move beyond ourselves into something greater. As you were talking, I was seeing the the image of the you know the stream turning into the river and the river naturally heading out towards the sea um it's it's easier to keep inflating pleasure than to operate on um a bunch of shoulds 
So yes, I like what you're talking about, pleasure as as fuel for revolution, mm. natural revolution. <laughs> if, if it I know really it's all right. about feelings. It's gonna... really right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> excellent, excellent. It's been so lovely talking to you, Ariel, and I'm such a fan of your work. You know that. And thank you, Jane. And thank you for inviting me to have this conversation. And I think years ago when we first met, we talked about podcasts. So I just love that you're creating this and offering this. Finally. I'm excited. It always takes a while, doesn't it? I feel like over time we see these conversations sort of weaving across time and they start to make sense. Yeah, I would say let's just continue cheering on um, all the welcomed women in the world. I'll go with that. To all the welcome (laughs) women in the world. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome yourself regularly. Perfect. Bye, darling. Just thinking of the world that kids need to navigate now in terms of sexuality is completely overwhelming to me, honestly. I don't know what the right amount of sex education is. I do know that porn is the default sex educator, but at the same time, we have all of these revolutions in uh, in awareness, revolutions in gender, revolutions in identity that are happening concurrently. Um, so the idea that a parent now would know how to navigate all of this stuff with a kid is kind of, I don't know, it's a bit beyond me. Um, and maybe it's where I'm at with my daughters because they are 10 and 14 but I feel like now they're the ones teaching me and it's funny actually just after this interview with Ariel I was watching the Netflix movie called Strip Down Rise Up which is a movie about empowerment through pole dancing and um It's got some pretty sexy images and my 10-year-old happened to walk in as I was watching it. It was after her bedtime and, you know, she walks into my room and there on the screen is a pile of sort of grinding lingerie bodies um, that I kind of paused on at an inopportune moment. And I said to her, hey, I, I, yeah, I know it looks like I'm watching porn, but this is a, you know, female empowerment documentary. And um, and she's like, whatever, mom, it's cool. You don't have to be ashamed about watching porn. And then like walked out of the room, you know, mic drop. And um Yeah, so that's kind of how it is these days. Um, I feel like my kids are the ones uh, educating me. That said, I'll never miss a moment to or miss an opportunity to kind of do some what I call kind of like public musing, you know, if sex comes up in any way, shape or form, I might, you know, say, well, you know, isn't it funny that... um, You know, women so often feel like they need to perform um, instead of enjoy. Or um, I wonder how much pressure the the young men watching porn feel these days. Or, um, God, I don't know. I don't know. I just try and pepper it in because the idea of sitting them down and telling them anything at this stage is just like, there's no way. There's absolutely no way they would squirm and wriggle out of it. So I just sort of lay it down wherever I can um, and really just try and alert them to um, you know the fact that 
they can make their own empowering choices and follow their bliss and it has doesn't have to be described to them by anyone else all i can say is let's all keep asking the right questions and allowing ourselves to get it wrong and i think uh, that might make the process easier and my last note i promise is humor 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 you know sex is not supposed to be so goddamn serious all the time and uh I guess uh, because it's uh, a huge money-making machine, sex does get pretty, pretty serious out there, uh, but it doesn't have to be. Okay, more to come. Join me for the next one. Thank you for listening.